You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. Well, talking about humpback whales, you mentioned they were big, so they can get up to 15 meters or close to 50 feet. You know, a little, you know, plus or minus uh, a few feet. What can they teach us? It's just really, really impressive. And these songs that the male humpback whales sing are long. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. And now I'm in like in such a mellow mood after listening to that whale song. Beautiful. Just impressive and and relaxing. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. it's almost, I felt violin and then just some like a human voice. Uh just very, oh. very comforting, calming. And I usually have my noisemaker on rain or ocean. Mm-hmm. Uh because sometimes the higher pitches of the whale songs will will jolt you awake. Yeah, <laughs> yeah a little, just a little bit. Uh, but I'm gonna have to try that again now after listening to that because that was very peaceful. Maybe I need a specifically only humpback whale. Yes. Yep. Uh, sound machine. Well, yeah, we are going back to the ocean, and this is definitely one of the world's most famous or more famous whales, the humpback whale. I, I can't believe it's taken us this long to get to them. They're just they're everywhere they're iconic they're they're beautiful songs they're breaching behaviors this is going to be a fun episode well and chris i can't believe it's been nine years since i last saw humpbacks in the wild so it was off the coast of the big island of hawaii and off of 
Kona Coast and from our balcony, John and I could watch them breach and put on amazing spectacles of just, we were just <laughs> sitting there. Awesome. We didn't, they have boat tours, of course, but yeah. uh, we were too cheap to do that. We just, we could see it from our hotel room, right? I mean, obviously not as impressive as being on a boat, but it was, it was life-changing and just, I mean, they're, and what strikes you first about humpback whales is their size. They're mm-hmm. enormous, about the size of a school bus. And then when you go underwater and start to hear and learn more about these haunting songs, these melodic, beautiful mm-hmm. songs that typically accompany uh, their breeding season. And it was so fun to explore the complexity mm-hmm. of these songs. We'll talk a lot about that in the podcast today, of course, and behavior. And I learned that just the story of the humpback whale uh, is, is a fun one. So hopefully you'll stick around today. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I was I was watching documentaries while I was doing my research, and you know, if anybody has Disney Plus, go to the Secrets of the Whales and watch the Humpback episode. It's it's like you talk about whispering the calves and the mamas whispering to each other so they're not heard by orcas, uh, you know, that that prey on them. It, it 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 just an amazing species to learn about. We've got some exciting stuff to discuss today with them. One of the things I didn't I didn't know, Angie is humpbacks were almost hunted to extinction you know there was only the estimates are only by 1970 there was only like 5,000 of them left in the entire world like what what i because i saw them as a kid way back in the day and i never thought humpbacks were that endangered you know i knew some of the bigger species were but not not humpback whales so luckily or fortunately uh, they have rebounded nicely with conservation and the end of whaling uh, in many parts of the world. So, so we'll get to that story. We'll talk about it. Right. It's actually a really positive and hopeful uh, story about when regulations are put into place and researchers can help study these animals, learn more about them to provide protections for them in place, which they still need a lot of protection. There's still several yes. threats, and we'll talk about that today. In the past couple hundred years or so that tens of millions of whales were killed in fact experts think maybe between 66 and 90 percent of their population Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and now they are slowly starting to rebound um, in areas where they are protected it's it's hopeful it really is and they have these beautiful stunning songs people love them love seeing them learning more about them and diving into the research they are a popular species to study, but they are hard to study because they migrate a crazy distance. Yes. We'll talk about that. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So we're still learning a lot about them. And, I, and I'm going to offer that we still have a lot to uncover about humpback whales. There's still several mysteries, several yeah. mysteries about yeah, them absolutely. and so many things to learn, which always excites me as an animal lover and scientist and educator. Absolutely, absolutely. And I just want to give a big shout out to Annika this week. Thank you so much for your support on Patreon. Uh, It means a lot to us. Uh, You know, we're trying to put some stuff up there. Angie and I have just been really overwhelmed with work and COVID, you know, rampant here in New Zealand. Uh, But thank you so much for the support and for the for the continued kind words, emails, and messages, you know, just from the bottom of our heart, thank you. You know, we're, we're going to keep producing content. We're not going anywhere. It, pretty soon, you know, we get a break with, with school and, and we're going to catch up on a lot of species that we, we have on our list now. But we the have list some... The ma- getting very long. Chris just read it to me. 
<laughs> before we started the podcast. And I'm like, yes, that is awesome. It's an awesome list for 2022. Yeah. It's going to be great. And please keep your recommendations coming uh, via email or social media on Instagram or Facebook. And you can always join our Facebook group, All Creatures Podcast group. Uh, to join us in the conversation. I just posted uh, that the first golden Sichuan Takin ever to be born in the United States uh, has recently been born at the San Diego Zoo. Oh, nice. So, nice. yeah, well, a lot of fun, hopeful yeah. articles, a lot of evolution uh, mm. articles. And so, anyways, it's a way to stay a little bit more in touch. And at least if you're going to be scrolling on social media, learning something fun about animals each day. All right. Well, talking about humpback whales, you mentioned they were big, so they can get up to 15 meters or close to 50 feet, you know, a little, you know, plus or minus uh, a few feet. Females are a little bit longer than males. I didn't know that. Yeah, they're one of the only species of mammals where the female is consistently bigger than the male. Yeah. Yeah, it was crazy. I didn't know that. And and way up to 30 tons. I mean, massive, massive. I can't really picture that uh, <laughs> because I haven't been up close to one. Mm-hmm. But throughout the podcast, as we start talking about the size of the heart and the size of the calves and the size yes. of their brain, that to me was really poignant. Like, mm -hmm. oh, wow. You know, like that's, yeah. that's just crazy. And if, if you have Natural History Museum in your area, oftentimes they will have a whale skeleton, not, not necessarily a humpback, but uh, if they have any remake or any uh, skeleton, check it out because it, it'll cover the whole room, the mm -hmm. whole building. It's just, fa it's fascinating. I know, I know. I got to get back to the Natural History Museum and back in the States uh, in DC. Uh, I think that's a, it's a blue whale. I don't know which one they have down there, but yeah, that's always exciting to see. So how do they differ in looks? Because I, 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 I always go back to blue whale and our blue whale episode back uh, way back when, and I'll cover those at the end of the podcast, uh, other whale episodes. But they, the humpback's definitely unique compared to some of the other baleen whales. They are. I think they're pretty iconic. And if you just looked up a lineup of baleen or the filter feeding whales, you most people would probably be able to pick out the humpback whale. But keep in mind, the humpbacks don't actually have like a hump on their back. Their name actually comes from the large hump that forms when they arch their backs back before making a deep dive into the ocean. So there really is no quote-unquote hump. Mm -hmm. And from the top, their bodies are generally black or dark gray. And from the bottom, they're usually white. Now, this will vary a little bit depending on where the population lives. And when we get to their range and habitat, we'll learn that they live in major oceans and migrate a lot. Uh, so there are some regional effects. But Chris, to me, what's really striking about their underside is that they have 14 to 35 long grooves that run from the underside of their mouth, basically to their navel region and onto their tail. And these these grooves are they're called ventral plates basically allow the throat to expand massively and open up to have all that water rush in as a filter feeder and they're just really impressive when they're doing these breaches and you can see their bellies they have these white bellies with these long lines running down them and it's just super impressive it is like when they feed and then you just see that mouth just expand it's 
I mean, it would swallow us easy if we're swimming there. So I'll yes. be careful, but yeah, it's, oh, it's right. massive. Yeah, it's, just, yeah. it's, just, it's, it's just impressive. And then, yeah. of course, their flippers also set them apart, I think, mm-hmm. than other, other baleen whales. They're very distinct in their size and how they're formed. And so they're really long. The These are their front flippers. They can be almost a third of their body length. I know. Five meters, 15 feet. So, just their flipper. Just their flipper. Two of me. Yeah. Yeah. And then they often have these white knobs on the outside edge, too, that look like giant bumps. And so, once again, when they're doing these aerial breaches out of the water, these notches on the front, on these huge front flippers, are really, really distinctive. And then their flukes are beautiful, they're butterfly sh- shaped. And they have really distinct patterns of gray and white on them, along with like a scallop-shaped trailing edge. And their flukes are huge, 18 feet wide. That's crazy. Yeah. I it's mean, big. the red edge, that's yeah. just crazy. Yeah. And over time, scientists from studying these humpback whales have learned that the coloration pattern um, on the flukes and a little bit to some extent the shape are like a fingerprint to each animal and so when they're using photo identification to catalog where an individual is they can trace them from one season to the next if they're lucky enough to see that fluke so it becomes their their id tag which is just really really cool that they have that and then lastly for the dorsal fin of the humpback whale it's small triangle, triangular in shape. Um, some might say it has a hump shape, but that's technically not where they got their name, the humpback, from, as, as, as at least my understanding of it. Well, I can't wait to see him off New Zealand. Uh, I know Jesse was doing, uh, when he first moved here, he was doing dolphin and whale boats off Kaikoura on the South Island and saw humpbacks all the time. Uh, so cool. So they are here you know, as part of their primary range. I mean, humpbacks are found throughout the world but they kind of define them as primary ranges then they have some secondary ranges and and really the the equator you you don't tend to find them it's probably a little bit too warm and then obviously not a lot of their their food is going to be there what they eat but primary ranges you know i'll start near me in the southern hemisphere you know around australia around new zealand obviously the arctic is where they like to go and then north of me we're going to talk about that in the tropics around the cook islands and tonga fiji all around there because that's where they migrate to breed and then they go back down to the arctic to feed in the northern hemisphere obviously angie's already said hawaii and that's their breeding grounds and then those north pacific populations like to migrate to uh you know the northern pacific off the bering strait even close up to the sea ice and very similar in the atlantic ocean they go up i'm going to talk about iceland and greenland uh, the uk that's their winter feeding ground and then they migrate down to like the caribbean in north africa for breeding and then just flip it so i found it pretty much everywhere you know but again we're going to talk about their populations they're not very robust i mean you're talking hundred thousand whales in the entire world 
which again is is not massive, right? No, especially <laughs> considering they're swimming in all those different parts of the ocean. And yeah, the ocean is yeah. massive. So, well, and there's one special population that we're going to talk about off the Arabian Peninsula that is endangered. And when I get to evolution, well, I, I guess I can talk about them here. It's estimated that they've been isolated from other humpback whales for close to 70,000 years. They've just been off the Arabian Peninsula between India and Oman. That's where they live. They don't migrate outside that area. So there's not a lot of gene flow. They're not getting a lot of, uh, you know, genetic differences. So, and this is, this is close. They're endangered subpopulation, probably critically endangered. There's estimates of less than hundred of them left. Uh, in that region of the world so but you're going to find humpbacks you know pretty much everywhere even the mediterranean you know they can go in there as a secondary range now why whales are important i'm going to get into this a little bit i found a very very interesting study but angie whales are it's not more just you know we, we talk a lot about a lot of species seed dispersers or help control the population which obviously humpbacks are doing but the nutrient recycle that they do, their poop is critical. It, yes, all, let's yes. talk about whale poop. Yes. One of my favorite times of the week, talking about poop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And whale poo, there's a lot of it, as you can imagine. We'll, we'll discuss how much they eat, but it's in the thousands of pounds per day uh, as a little hint. And so they do defecate a lot. And this poop will sink down to the ocean floor. And it contains several nutrients, for example, iron uh, and other really important thing to form basically the, the foundation of the, uh, the food web on the ocean floor. And when the whale poop is at the bottom of the ocean floor, it helps the carbon absorbing phytoplankton, which is the basis of all marine life in the ocean, uh, it helps them thrive and they help act as a carbon sink. So yeah, whale poop is good. We, we, <laughs> want, good. <laughs> we want more whales pooping in our ocean. Yeah, we need them. We mm -hmm. need it. It's mm -hmm. so important to the nutrient recycling. Mm -hmm. Like it, it is it is critical. And then Chris, to layer on top of that about why I care about humpback whales and whales in general is when they do pass on and they die, the whale carcass will naturally sink to the ocean floor. And all of that carbon that is in their enormous bodies will be transferred to the ocean floor deep in the sea and stay there for centuries. And so this one study looked at trends of whales before the whaling industry took them out for the most part or most of them out. It's estimated that all whales, excluding sperm whales, I don't know why they excluded sperm whales, they would have sunk almost 2 million tons of carbon per year to the bottom of the ocean. So that's taking anywhere from 40 to 400,000 cars off the road each year, depending on their gas mileage. But when you take a whale out of the ocean for whaling, which is what happened in the past century, and then you process the whale carcass, all of that carbon is released in the atmosphere. Yeah, commercial whaling really, really did a number on a lot of whales up until, you know, the, the 1960s and the 70s. You know, we, we talked about that in previous podcasts where, you know, whaling in the in the, in the Southern Hemisphere uh, was just devastating, devastating to whale populations. But thankfully, whales are starting to recover 
And then, Chris, when it's not about the money, it's about the money. These humpback whales that are migrating and breeding and off the coast of Hawaii, and I had friends, lucky enough, my friend Erin took her family. They saw humpbacks off the coast of Mexico a couple weeks ago. I was super jealous uh, and happy for her, very happy for Erin, uh, and got to live vicariously through her photos that this provides a lot of economic stimulus to the countries that can host these tours. And so it's a great way to be able to enjoy humpback whales in their natural elements, doing what they do year after year after year, uh, being able to identify them, being able to see them and enjoy them. And I think we need more of that. Yeah, I need to get you down here to New Zealand or anybody come visit us as we finally open up back to the world uh, starting next month and throughout this year. Come come see all the whales off our coast, blue whales, sperm whales, and humpback whales are the big three that uh, I need to see and see soon. But in that light, Angie, and, and, and in the whaling too, I, I want to give a shout out to Iceland. I know, I think in our previous podcast, I, I, I gave them a shout out that I noticed uh, we're having quite a bit of downloads coming out of Iceland now. So I did find an interesting study uh, with the ecological niche of baleen whales off Iceland. And to start it off, some really great news in the last couple of weeks coming out of Iceland is they will end all whaling in 2024. I wish it was this year, but they've got a couple more years because the annual quote, the annual quota is for about 209 fin whales and 217 minke whales are hunted each year off Iceland. Uh, the fin whales, the meat sent off to Japan. Uh, the minke whales are eaten domestically. But because of falling demand for whale meat, and Japan has resumed commercial whaling in 2019, uh, it's really taken a hit in Iceland. Now, I know when we spoke to Paul Watson, he drove them out of the Southern Hemisphere. So I think Japan might be whaling in the Northern Hemisphere. It's something worthwhile to to revisit in a future podcast uh, to see where Japan is whaling. But again, even in Japan, whale meat is is a delicacy. It is, it's the older population. We've talked about this uh, because after World War II, that was a primary protein source for many Japanese. So it's more of a comfort food. Uh, they don't need to eat it, and, and demand has, has fallen off a cliff. Now, what was also interesting in Iceland is there's been a long, like almost two-decade campaign carried out largely by local Icelanders and local whale watching companies there to end the practice of whaling, and it's had a major impact. So Iceland is, is stopping whaling uh, in 2024, so that's great, great news. Now, this study was published in 2021, so just last year, in December, really. This is the latest study in Progress in Oceanography, and it's called The Ecological Niche Partitioning Between Baleen Whales Inhabiting Icelandic Waters. Okay. Because I was looking at, okay, let's, we know whale and the nutrient recycling, but what what else are they doing out there? You know, what's the impact they're having? And... Iceland, I, I don't know. I just have a warm spot for Iceland. You know, living in New Zealand, you know, one of these unique spots in the world that people want to go visit one day. Iceland's definitely on my bucket list. I, I want to get up there. I, 
I just I can't wait to to get out there and see all the uh, the landscape there. It's just, yeah, it's, it's very. Just, the, it looks very dramatic. Oh, and it's jaw dropping, beautiful. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Iceland's just one of those special places on Earth. So I want to get up there. So this study was looking at the foraging of these baleen whales uh, during the summer, because that's an important time of year for these whales to feed. Now, the most common species of baleen whales off Iceland are the minke whale, the fin whale then the sea whale, the humpback, and the blue whale. So these five species are pretty abundant off Iceland. And it was interesting, the study also wanted to look at the coexistence of these five species and how they can exist together, hunting for very similar prey, you know, what they they feed, because they, they thought there might be some competition there between these five species of whales. And, you know, so they wanted to look at that. Now, the summer feeding is, like I said, very, very important. This this North Atlantic sp- spring bloom. It's like the North Pacific or here, the Arctic. That's when the waters are warming up, more sunshine, plankton, krill, all these other species uh, are, are, are booming. And that's why the whales migrate there to feed. And then during the winter is when these whales migrate down to the warmer waters to breed. Now, Angie will probably get a little bit in this and when we get to nutrition. These feeding times are critical for the whales because this is when they put on a lot of their blubber. This is where they, they get a lot of their energy because during the rest of the year, they don't feed much at all, right? Like it, it's when they migrate and during breeding season, there is not a lot of plankton and krill off Hawaii, if any at all, right? So this this study was looking at the the definitely ecological niches of these baleen whales. You know, are they? What is this 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 trophic food web? This this very complex food web, top down, bottom up of whales and getting down to the the macropods right or the krill the plankton all that and then they wanted to look at competition with fisheries too because there is a lot of of fishing off iceland again this bloom that's when a lot of ocean fishing goes and and there's a lot of cod and other herring other types of fish taking out in the north atlantic so what they were basically doing was looking at the diet composition of these five different species what are they eating and how they did this angie is it blows me away this is why i, I picked this study because it, it is just bear with me it is very geeky science but i always like to explain this sometimes like how do we come up with things because they can't you can imagine out in the ocean we can't follow a group of humpbacks and say oh okay you ate 600 pounds of plankton today or whatever it is. Like, I guess that's a blue whale. It's hard to study. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Very, very. So I was like, okay, well, how did you figure out what they're eating? Well, what they've done, this is why science is so cool. uh, And just another reason is they looked at skin samples. And in those skin samples, they were looking at the chemical makeup of nitrogen, carbon, and sulfur. So they've been able to go out. It was like 20 whales per species. They've gone, they went and took skin samples and looking at these isotopes and then through some very complex modeling, they were able to determine what they were eating. 
Now they've done this off because in previous studies, they have looked at skin samples on dead whales, especially ones that were hunted and then stomach contents, right? And they were able to correlate, well, when you eat more of krill, you're going to get more nitrogen or- Sure, very molecularly based. Yes, yes, it's very complex. And it was a little bit, I didn't spend a lot, a lot of time reading this. I just thought, okay, well, how would you determine diets? And they were looking at the, uh, the chemical composition of their skin which is based on what you eat. What you eat is, you know, it, 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 it's the building blocks of your body. Well, and just to add to that about the body being an interesting marker for a lot of things, uh, the talk I went to a couple of years ago in uh, South Africa in Kruger mm-hmm. for the in, uh, Wildlife Endocrinology Group, there was a woman there that was presenting how she was able to track hormone levels in a species of baleen whale and forgive me i was probably i can't remember which which <laughs> species it was and that the baleen which we'll talk about when we get to nutrition but that's like their filter feeding mechanism uh that's almost it's not a tooth because it's made just of keratin like our hair it's basically mm-hmm. like long thick hair that helps them filter feed out all the shrimp and uh, plankton and smaller items that they could use it like a piece of hair to estimate how hormones changed over time as mm-hmm. the keratin grew. That's crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's like hair analysis is becoming a big exactly. thing. Exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, and determining at, at a snapshot in time what your mm-hmm. what was going on in your body. Well, that's what that's that's in essence what they were doing with diet. And they and they have previous studies to go back and correlate it. So they, they have confidence that we can just take skin samples off these baleen whales and then get a, an idea of their diet. And the five major areas of diet they were looking at were the, the coat pods, which were the, uh, is plankton. So the group of plankton, the krill, which are small crustaceans. And I know we're not invertebrate specialists, but I'm thinking maybe in July we, we do either plankton or krill. We just, they're so important to the ocean. They're just so critical. So we we may throw that I may throw that gauntlet down for us to pick up. I would I would learn a lot. It would be fun. Yeah. As, and as long as we're allowed to put the disclaimer at the beginning, <laughs> we are not in our lane. No, we are not invertebrate specialists. <laughs> but we're having fun, right? And hey. we're learning together. We did coral a couple of years ago. That was a fun. We did. One. I think I yeah. prepped for about a month before that. Yeah, I know, and, I, know. Uh, I know. But it was worth it. I mean, I yeah. learned a lot. It's fantastic. It's one yeah. of one of my favorite interviews uh, with Dan from Coral. Coral Restoration Foundation and the amazing work they're doing to help uh, basically grow and translocate corals. It's pretty yeah. cool. No, it is. It is. It is. So just to finish out the list, the sand eel, which is a small fish, uh, it's used for commercial fish meal. So there's some overlap with commercial fishing there. The capelin, which is like smelt, small fish, herring, and then the godoids, which is like fish like cod. All right. So the, the sea whale... Their diet is mainly plankton and krill. That is what they, it was like 60% krill, 40% plankton. Blue whale, very interesting, Angie, nearly 90% krill and then about 10% plankton. Hmm. Okay, blue whale and fin whale, very close. In that blue whale episode, or in an episode, I remember we talked about uh, blue whales and fin whales crossbreeding. You know, there was a an article a few years ago that Iceland had cap, you know, had killed a fin whale. They, then they thought it might have been a blue whale, but it was actually a hybrid. Uh, 
So there was some crossbreeding between blue and fin whales. Very similar fin whales, 90% krill, 10% plankton. Minky whales, I'm saving humpbacks for last. Minky whales, really interesting, 50% sand eels, then about 20, 30% krill, and then some capelins, herring, and godoids. So they're eating some small fish. And humpbacks, primarily 60% krill, and then kind of similar to minkies where they, they had some sand eel, capelins, herring, and godoids. So humpbacks there in that part of the world had kind of a more varied diet than say a blue whale, which is mostly all plankton. So then they went and looked at, you know, how does this, the, the niche overlap between all the baleen whales and really fin whales and blue whales were very, very close. So they had some overlap where the mink and, and, and humpback whales had more of a variety of a diet and a, a larger niche in that part of the world. So the overlap wasn't great. It was just big between fin and blue whales. Those are the only two that had some overlap. Now, when it came to competition with fisheries, this study thought yeah, there's some competition, especially, especially with the smaller fish, but not as much as other whale species. And that the contribution to the food web of these baleen whales way is way more important than their their impacts on the fisheries because because of that nutrient recycling we talked about in because of the poop and things that they do maintaining them in the food web is actually more vital to ocean health and fish health in that area of the world than removing them because if you remove these whales from the environment you're going to actually have probably less cod less herring less of these smelt fish these other these other species so they're saying they actually have a net positive on uh, the fisheries there and the other thing was with the competition they found even though some of these species prey on krill or prey on you know plankton or some of these other uh, similar animals that they found that the whales don't all arrive there at the same time so there's a little bit of a disjointed time when they're in these feeding grounds they also found that they forage at different depths so it's not just like all surface like we see the humpbacks in, in, in all the videos I was watching the humpbacks coming to the surface and we'll talk about their bubble nets and things that they do um, so they're not all competing for oh there's a there's a, a ball of krill and they all rush towards it it's blue whales are one part of the the water column or the area humpbacks are at a different um, area and, and then obviously different times so the study was very interesting on, on what they're eating and, and i found it fascinating that they can determine that by just skin samples but again it's it it's giving an understanding of why the humpback and it's other the other baleen whale species are so critical to ocean and 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 our livelihoods you know and fisheries and and all the impacts that they have right it's it's like what we say about tigers save the humpback whales and we'll save the oceans we'll save ourselves just yeah it's really really impactful 
Yeah, 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 yeah. So, th- so there's my science for the day, and hopefully, I explained <laughs> that a little bit. But it, it, it's founded a fascinating study. I think you did a great job. I could dork out about uh, <laughs> molecules, especially the, as they relate to nutrition, all day. So I know, I know. I just it, and, and it should make the listeners feel good that there's scientists out there doing these studies working hard, getting the funding, going out. It, I'm going to mention her again at the end of the podcast, but episode 27, Dr. Kim Getz, you know, out of New Zealand, studying blue whales. There's so many people like her out there fighting yeah, for Yeah, we'll check her back on the podcast. I'm sure there's some interesting updates now. Yeah, I know. I know. I would love to I'd chase her down. Yeah, she's down in Wellington. So yeah, I'll, I'll try to shoot her an email and see if I can get her back on. All right, well... I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. That is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, And was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. We're going a little long, so let me get through... (laughs) <laughs> Let me get a really evolution. big podcast for a really big species or a uh, long podcast for a long species any, any way you look at it we're due we're due you know we've been a little light on species lately so it's funny i didn't want to jinx us but i almost said before we started recording chris maybe this should be a two-part series because i have a lot of slides <laughs> <laughs> it's all right it's all right it's whales are amazing and you know give people uh time to catch up on, a, on an animal that uh they really want to know about Evolution, we've we've covered whales quite a bit. The order is Artiodactyla, which always fascinates me. The even-toed ungulates. So whale relatives, cattle, giraffe, and sheep. So just it always cracks me up that whales are with them. But the intra-order is Cetacea. So our whales, dolphins, and porpoise, and there's over 90 species. Now this is where it kind of breaks out with the tooth whales, which we've covered orcas, belugas, narwhals, uh, some of our dolphin species that we've talked about, even our river dolphins break out. 
And then we have our baleen whales. Now, the family that humpbacks are in are Baleenopteridae, which are the rorquals. So of the baleen whales, Angie, we, we've done some rorquals. So in the family, you have the fin whales, the blue whales, the bird's whale, and then the grays, the minkies, and humpback whale. Okay. Now, the closest relative to the humpback, surprisingly, is the, is the fin whale. I thought the fin whale would have been more related to blue whale, but genetic analysis has shown that they're actually closer, close, more closely related to the humpbacks. And there is no official subspecies of humpback, but looking at genetics, the gene flow from the Pacific to the Southern Oceans is very limited. Because again, even though they do get in the tropics during that mating season, they generally don't cross that equator. Uh, but there is some, there has been some gene flow over tens of thousands of years. Just that Arabian Sea group has been isolated for so long. They're very unique genetically. So scientists do think there's there's generally three to four subspecies. It hasn't been official yet, but you know, the Southern Ocean, the Northern Ocean, and this Arabian Sea population. But the scientific name for the humpback whale is Megaptera Novanglia. Oh my God. Novanglia. Oh my God. N O V A E N G L I A. I'm just sitting here like, nope, not doing that one. <laughs> I should edit that out, but I won't because it's fun to laugh at me. All right. Whale evolution, amazing, uh, over 56 million years. Hippos, of all the land mammals, is the closest relative, and, and our recent guest talked about that. I don't know if this is going to go first or that guest interview, but see if you can catch it when you hear it. And we know the early artiodactyls went from land to sea and evolved from there. So they didn't come out of the ocean to land. They actually, like a hippo, became more aquatic and then started swimming and our recent guest who's going to be we don't know if this episode is going to air first or not but when he talked about one of the best species as a representation of evolution he said whales that a lot of their bones are still representative of what used to be feet so maybe in a future episode, we'll, we'll, we'll go a little bit more into that, looking at the, the skeletal structure of today's whales. But they have remnant like foot bones and right, finger well, bones. Whole, I mean, they were a mammal on land. And then they yeah. said, you know what? Let's go back into the ocean. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's crazy. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. yeah, and they yeah that, that's a and, whole podcast in, alone. Yeah, in itself. In itself. So that started about 50 billion years ago around India and Pakistan. Now, humpback whales specifically, we know diverged out about 10 million years ago from the other baleen whales, their ancient relatives, and then the modern humpbacks about 880,000 years ago in the Southern Hemisphere is where they emerged and then colonized the Northern Hemisphere anywhere from 40 or anywhere around 200,000 years ago is when they kind of, is when they moved up into the Northern Hemisphere. All right, so let's get to some facts. This is going to be a long damn podcast. Average lifespan, Angie. I've, I saw data all over the place. I saw around 50 years old. I, I saw that they can live up to be 95 years old. I, I don't know if we... 
I know when we did the bowhead whale, we talked about the earwax as a, as a measurement and like they were 200 years old. Like we had a bowhead whale with a wooden harpoon from the 1800s still swimming around. So uh, yeah, I think humpbacks live pretty long. I think so. Yeah. It's just one of these things that we still have a lot to learn about them and they still have a lot to teach us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now swimming, they swim on average three to nine miles per hour, which is about what we do. What We're five, right? We can go max five. <laughs> so On a good day. <laughs> on a good day. Yeah. That's not me. Not, <laughs> not post COVID over here, yeah. but uh, I'm, I'm going to get back in that pool. I, yeah. I, just, I actually just got new goggles. So I'm pretty okay, excited okay. about that. Stay tuned. Yeah, so up to 14 kilometers per hour, but when in danger, they can speed up to about 16 miles per hour or 26 kilometers per hour. So they they, they can speed off a little bit. Uh, they can dive up to 30 minutes, but their dives last maybe 15 minutes. And they only go about 200 meters. So, you know, they, they, they don't go super deep like some of our other species. Now, in the interest of time, Angie, really what I think some of the highlights of blue whales is their feeding behavior and obviously the song. I definitely want to get to that. But talking about, you know, what they eat, I've already talked about some of it. I know that diet varies throughout the world's oceans. Now, their swallowing behaviors, maybe you can talk, talk a little bit more about this, but for what, what I got is the, the baling plates catch the food, right? And they, yeah, they, they have anywhere from 270 to 400 fringes of these plates. Some that overlap and they hang down mm-hmm. from the upper jaw. And they're made of keratin. Almost, I always think of like a brush almost. Right, right, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's just incredible. And then they engulf a large amount of water, close their mouth. And as they filter the water through the baleen, the two blowholes on the whale's back shoot the water out. And then all the yummy goodies, the fish and other small things, uh, stay in the whale's mouth for digestion. <laughs> so you might have blown all that water out of your nose. <laughs> right, crazy. <laughs> and and on a good day in the summer, they can eat up to 3,000 pounds or oh, about 1,300 kilograms of food per day. Yeah, that's huge. I can't yeah. even imagine... <laughs> I mean, that's just such a large amount. It's such a large amount of food, and and then they're working hard to expel all that water too uh, through this filter feeding system. So it's just a sight to be seen. It's just incredible. Well, their foraging behavior or feeding behavior is is fascinating. And again, I go back to you know I was doing all my research, and I I threw up uh, Disney Plus up there with the the secrets of the whales, the humpback whale episode. And it had a mother and a calf, and she was teaching it how to do these these bubble nets. So again, that goes back to, in my head, I was like, oh God, I remember when Angie was talking about culture and go back to orcas and how they teach the young. It's just, oh, it's so fascinating. But that was amazing to watch how they their different behaviors and, and how smart they are. Like, it's just, Oh, Chris, yes, they're they're just incredible. Their feeding behavior. There's several different uh, types and styles that have really fun names. You mentioned the bubble behavior. That's a pretty popular one, uh, where basically the whales exhale to create bubbles and make these bubble clouds and these bubble columns to help concentrate and capture 
these prey or this, this these food items. And I've seen some of that on video before from whale watchers. And I was just like, why am I not there? I love this. And humpbacks also do another feeding behavior called the ring of foam. And that basically entails them coordinating together, which is fascinating and a sign of a lot of intelligence as well, but coordinating together to swim in a circle and they strike the the water with their tails or their flukes and they form this like ring of foam to surround their food. And then they dive under the ring and resurface and with their mouth open to capture all the prey. Uh, They have a lunging behavior, which is pretty common. And in this behavior, the humpbacks will swim like vertically along with their prey and just lunge at it and and just go for it. Um, They also make bubble clouds, bubble columns. They do a lot of tail slashing, inside loop behavior. Uh, That's just a crazy skateboard style, Olympic Mm -hmm. style type uh, feeding, if you ask me. Um, They do flick feeding and a lot of times they'll combine some of these methods too. So it's just mind-blowing and we could do a whole podcast on on just how they feed and how clever they are and and what scientists know and and of course what gaps we need to fill in as we learn more about them oh yeah i mean it's again when we talk about teaching the young and and one of those sequences i watched and it wasn't in that that particular one it was another one with with humpbacks and it was a mother and a calf being chased by a pod of orcas and orcas do hunt humpbacks, generally the young or the sick. They, they can't take on a full adult. But as she was being chased, and she, obviously she was calling out, all of a sudden these male humpbacks came in to help defend her and the calf. It was a group of like three males. And they actually chased off the orcas. And nature being what nature is, the orcas ran off and the, the males chased them and the orcas were smart enough to get enough distance, they circled back at the the mom and calf and got the calf, which is very sad. But uh, it's like, I love orcas and I love how amazing they are. It's like, oh. Talk about intelligence and amazing hunting styles as well. Uh, nature, you could be so tough. Uh, but I thought it was amazing that the how the male humpbacks came into... Uh, defend her and chased off the orcas but yeah orcas are tough they're they're the wolves of the sea they're the top dogs out there um quite literally what is fascinating about a lot of these baleen whales angie especially the humpbacks is this migration that they do besides that arabian sea population but they travel over three thousand miles or five thousand kilometers each season I read they can cover a thousand miles per month. Yeah, Chris, they can complete the three thousand mile trip from basically Alaska to Hawaii in twenty eight days. Humpbacks migrate farther than any other mammal known on Earth. So traveling between their breeding grounds and their feeding grounds on a regular basis. So it's not just like the one time they do it a year, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was one migration that was recorded over 11,000 miles in a trip that went from America, Samoa to the Antarctic Peninsula. I mean... Yeah, crazy. They go far, far, mm -hmm, far. mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And Chris, I didn't even do any deep dives on how they know where they're going and all of that, like we've talked about a little bit with sea turtles and some of our other ocean animals that move these incredible distances over time and back to different breeding grounds, different birthing grounds. Uh, so I don't know how they do it. I don't know if we know how they do it and that maybe migration should be its own pod for its own day because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's just so fascinating to me. I mean, you stick me in the middle of the country without my phone and I'm like, uh, <laughs> I don't know where to go. <laughs> no. So when you think of like ocean and, and I mean, our, there's not really even landmarks. I mean, it, it's just, they're incredible. It always goes back to sea turtles when you covered that too. Just how they do it, how they know where to go. Uh, it, it is amazing. And of course they travel these long distances and they hit some really deep, amazing waters, but they do like to hang out near shore, not too far offshore when, and when calving. And so, but oftentimes humpbacks are found not too far off from shore, uh, depending on if it's breeding or calving season, uh, during their, as they're migrating through waters and that's when they put on a show for all the tourists, right? And do the breaching behaviors where they jump out of the water and they do the awesome tail slaps, uh, pectoral fin slaps, uh, just really cool stuff. And so, yeah, they get around and they know how to put on a show. Well, all so leading to behavior, you, you kind of talked about the breaching stuff. Getting to that, because the humpbacks are really known for that. For 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 the they reaching. are. I yeah. mean, they are very big. Of what'd you say, forty mm. tons? Yes. And they propel themselves out of the water almost all the way. Uh, maybe just their um, fluke, the bottom of their fluke in the water, and then they splash back down, often on their side or their back, to make this huge splash. It's noisy. It's beautiful. And this breaching behavior is just fascinating to observe. Uh, uh, if you're ever so lucky and scientists aren't sure exactly why they do it uh, they think it might be fun they think that they might be it looks fun I'll tell you mm-hmm. uh, to, mm-hmm. <laughs> I know it's funny my boys will um, they're getting to be good swimmers and so they're like learning to cannonball into the water and like, <laughs> yes. flashes yeah. and have a lot of fun with that but then uh, bless John's heart he'll 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 have to one-up them and <laughs> <laughs> he'll do a he'll do a, a whale of a cannonball that uh, you know definitely creates a pretty good tidal wave for us to laugh at. So take that and then scale it up a couple thousand times, even more, hundred thousand times. I I, I'm, I can't. It's too late at night here to do the math. Yeah, at any yeah. rate, I mean it's a sight to be seen in, in this uh, in the wave that they make. So maybe they're splashing off parasites. Maybe it's fun. Maybe it's to show off. We really just don't know. Once again, there's mm-hmm. still a lot to uh, to learn. To learn, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, some of the things I noticed watching these episodes is, you know, during breeding, uh, there was some aggressive social behavior between the males, but generally the the, the females are are solitary, right? Yeah, Chris. I mean, they sometimes live in groups and they sometimes mm-hmm. live alone. If they are in a pod, um, it's usually going to be of like two or three whales, so mm-hmm. not not big when you think of some of the other marine mammal species. And oftentimes when they are traveling together, it might be a mom and her young one, and you'll get to see a lot of social affiliative behaviors of them touching fins when they swim or like 
the story you were telling of the of the mom protecting the calf. And you might see more of them together when when they're trying to migrate from the tropical areas to the more northern feeding grounds. And interestingly enough, the humpbacks have also been documented having pretty much peaceful relationships with other animals. For instance, the mink whales, they've been seen in close proximity to humpback populations. They also get along pretty nicely with uh, seabirds, even though they have similar prey items. So when, when they're a small group or an individual, they are usually pretty submissive. Uh, if the group is a little bit larger, then they might be a little bit more aggressive to an, uh, to an intruder or even maybe boats that are, are coming near them. But overall, if you stay far enough away, you should be able to enjoy those breaching behaviors and tail slaps uh, from a distance. And then, of course, for their intraspecies behavior and communication, we're going to talk about their songs here in a second. And then when we think about the intraspecies behavior of humpback whales, that's where it gets really cool. Uh, We opened up the podcast with the humpback whale song. The songs are beautiful, they're haunting, they're melodic. They have moans, cries, howls, uh, chirps even, just incredible. But what's really fascinating about these songs is, for the most part, they're only sung by males. I know, I know. I find that interesting. And the scientist in me had to do more digging, and I didn't give it enough time. I'm like, no, the females must sing. We're, we just haven't <laughs> found it yet, and they have to do something. And uh, But from what we know so far, it does seem like the females and the calves have a lot of vocaliz- mm-hmm. have a lot of vocalizations amongst each other, um, but they don't have these complex elaborate sequences of all the different sounds that you heard um, opening up this podcast. So it's just really, really impressive. And these songs that the male humpback whales sing are long and loud. Yeah, I imagine. The male humpback songs can be heard 20 miles or 30 kilometers away. And they have a frequency between 80 and 4,000 hertz. I, it's powerful. I remember the sperm whale episode, and we talked about the acoustics through water. Mm-hmm. The amount of power that that whale needs to generate to push those sound waves through viscous water, very thick, thick water. It's not through the air it's through water is insane to go 20 miles a a sound wave that's insane that's nuts the biology behind it all of the physiology i mean this is an animal yes mm -hmm. and similar to us there's they're squeezing air through their larynx or their vocal box uh and then the air goes through this really complex system of air sacs near their blowholes. And then, Chris, these songs consist of several different themes that are repeated in a continuous loop. So up to four to six themes, they repeat them in a continuous loop for a couple minutes, and they might come up for breath, for a breath, and then they go back down and will come up with another theme. 
And they will do this for hours. So depending on how I guess they feel or what they're trying to do with their song, and we'll talk about that in a second, uh, they can sing for a long time. And researchers are chipping away at, like I said, the different themes and the different melodic shifts and the uh, the inflection and the specific sounds that they're making, whether it's a moan or a cry. Um, and there are yeah, probably some audio uh, nerds in there too, you know, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. you would fall into that category now with all the editing that you do for this podcast. Know, you and Audacity are like really good friends, but, <laughs> but there's, there's a lot of research on it because it's just, it's really fascinating to scientists and they they want to almost decode it for lack of better terms and learn more about it and what we do know now is that males in certain populations as chris mentioned there's several populations throughout the major oceans in the world but males in a population will sing the same song but in different populations they have different songs does that make sense yeah, it's almost like dialect. You know how we, we, we've talked about that in other species where there's different dialects in orcas, you know, looking at culture. Yeah. Well, yes, Chris. And I, I'm glad you brought that up. I found a paper in um, the Royal Society of Publishing from 2022, so a recent one. And the title is, When Does Cultural Evolution Become Cumulative Culture? A Case Study of Humpback Whale Songs in 2022. And so the researchers were looking at a lot of this data over time and how the song is different in different populations. So the Atlantic Ocean sing a different song than the males in the Pacific Ocean. And, but then there's even a twist. So from year to year, the, the songs in the populations will differ. So they're not, it's not like they learn one song in their lifetime, The let's say for instance, the the Atlantic humpback whales. And then that's the song they sing for their whole life. No, 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 no. Each year uh, during breeding season, they'll add a few more elements or like I mentioned, like (laughs) phrases or intricacies, if you will. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they're writing music in essence. To their song. And then the other males in that population adapt it. So I don't know if there's like a lead choir instructor yeah. <laughs> maybe a dominant male or something <laughs> yeah. or the the senior the the patriarch i don't researchers don't know yeah. uh but they're doing some really radical things and they're doing it to the point where a lot of these great thinkers are talking about does this constitute as culture yeah and yeah. these great thinkers and biologists and behaviorists are kind of going back and forth. Well, this element of of it is, but this element not so much, but they're having that conversation and that fact alone just is indicative of how intelligent these animals are and how much we don't know about them and how much we need to learn and we need to protect them and protect the oceans so that we can hear their songs and maybe someday mm-hmm. understand them because Right now, research scientists don't really fully understand the functions of these songs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's been debated a lot, and that's in science. I know that scares some people sometimes. They're like, well, we thought, you know, researchers thought this for a while, but then they got new evidence, and now they think this. And, you know, I always believe that part of science is like you get, pro- you get proven wrong, and then you change your hypothesis and you keep looking, right? Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. It, it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? And so, 
it, it's how, I guess, science evolves and how we learn more. But the running theory for a long time was that males sing basically to establish dominance and uh, show off to the females and, you know, strut their stuff, right? Potentially an aggressive act, like, get out of here. This is my lady. But the females don't appear to actually visit or even care about a singer, which is fascinating because I was always, uh, I, I always turned my eye and my head at a, at a male musician, singer, vocalist, whatever, to the point where then I was like, you know what, I'm just going to learn how to play. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, yeah. But at any rate, uh, the females, yeah, they, we don't, you know, it doesn't seem that they're super attracted to the male singing the song. But the researchers have reported that there are sometimes interruptions of males that are not singers to males that are singers. And so there's one theory out there that singing might actually attract other males to the area. And then therefore, in like a lecking behavior, which we've talked about this lecking mating system in birds, that maybe that actually attracts a female. It's like, oh, something's going on over there. I don't like, you know, I want to go check it out. So there could be that. Um, there's not much evidence that the singing establishes dominance among males. Um, so researchers don't think it's necessarily an aggressive act, and it sure doesn't sound like an aggressive. It's, it's a very hypnotizing peaceful song so um it's probably not that or territorial um there's another possibility out there that these songs function to actually recruit other individual whales mm -hmm. to new wintering grounds okay okay so it might be like hey this is on where, it, yeah. right like an ad, maybe an advertisement or something mm -hmm. And then there's also suggestions, and I don't know if there's any evidence behind this, but there's also suggestions that these songs have um, echolocation properties. Oh, okay. So it might sense. help locate other males. So, yeah, we don't, I mean, truth be told, they're beautiful and they're mysterious in Monterey Bay Aquarium. And their team of scientists can stick a microphone in the water and capture these sounds that we opened up the podcast with. It's just... Yeah. Yeah. It's haunting and breathtaking and intriguing all at once. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. Now, with all this, the the, the male competition, and the reproduction and mm -hmm. the calf rearing, very critical. So what do we know? Well, Chris, we know that humpback whales have a polygonous mating system where the males do compete and there is some aggression to breed the females that are in estrus. Now, not surprisingly, there's very few observations of humpback whales breeding in the wild. But we do know a little bit about their courtship behaviors. Once a female is interested in accepting a male, uh, they'll swim in a line and they'll engage in basically flipping and rolling and tail fluking behaviors. And they'll often dive and then sur surface vertically within close contact with one another. And then there's a really cool behavior where they'll come out of the water to a point below, just below their flippers, and then they'll fall back on the surface of the water together. So almost like a, uh, a joint half breach. 
And lastly, they, there's going to be a couple tail and flipper slaps in there too, just, just for good measure because those flippers are so big and beautiful. And the female humpback whale is monesterous, so she's going to only ovulate once during the breeding season. And if a male is lucky enough to breed her when she's cycling in an asterisk, her gestation is anywhere from 11 to 12 months. There's a lot of growing for that calf to do when it's in mama's belly. Yeah, it's massive. So Chris, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Do you think whale calves come out head or tail first? Oh, I'm pretty sure it's tail first, isn't it? Just from what I've seen, yeah. It is, it okay, is. But okay. you're probably maybe thinking of either... Orca, I think just in yeah. like the SeaWorld videos watching mm-hmm. that happen, yeah, yeah. Because it's really interesting. There is very little documentation of a humpback calf being born. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In fact, there was a little bit, uh, like half of it of the birth was caught in 2013. And then more recently, um, there was footage that was caught uh, with, a, with a drone. And then I think researchers were called in, so they got more of it. Uh, so it's, it's, it's pretty rare. If, if you, There is one on YouTube that I was able to watch. And yes, I am a dork. I sat there <laughs> and was just like, oh my God, this is amazing. Yeah, yeah. But what had me really searching for this, and I'm like, I have to see this, is that newborn humpback wheel calves are between 10 and 15 feet long. Three to four and a half meters. They're big. They're and they weigh up. They weigh up to a ton, like nine hundred kilograms. It's a baby boy. Here you go. In my notes, I have this like uh, that size, and I was like, uh, I need to see this. <laughs> so, <laughs> when I had more time, I went and I, yeah. I did some. Uh, I, I'm like, I have, to, I have to see this. So it's fascinating. Um, Calves are big. They're born in warm tropical and subtropical waters uh, of each hemisphere. And they, of course, um, subsist on their mother's milk. It's highly, highly nutritious. It contains a lot of fat and protein, lactose, and water. The male is 100% not involved. And so it's just the female uh, mom and the calf. And the calves will nurse for almost a year, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that is, that's a long time to nurse uh, from a lot of the other animals we talk about in this podcast. And check this out, Chris. A calf can drink 158 gallons or 600 of liters of milk per day. God. <laughs> As a mother myself, let me tell you, <laughs> my pump would have broke if I had to make that much milk. (laughs) I was happy when I'd get like three ounces and then sometimes I'd spill it. I'd be like, no, but Uh, that is a lot of milk. Like, holy cow. Pardon the pun. Sorry. But (laughs) yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, But that's a lot. And they grow a lot. So, mm -hmm. I mean, that first year they're really, they're, you know, they're, they're growing a lot in length and they're putting blubber on to be help, help them get through the lean, um, the lean times. But it's just crazy. And yeah, so that's a lot. That's I even brought yeah. that up in class the other day. Like, how do they nurse, you know, uh, you know, with the underwater? How do they yeah. nurse underwater? Yeah, yeah. It's very thick and viscous and, and they're able to stimulate milk release and then just suck it right up. Mm-hmm. But yeah. While they're amazing. holding their breath. 
Yeah. Right. Underwater. Yeah. Because they're yeah, mammals. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. just fascinating. I just, yeah. it's just, I, I, I love physiology. Um, and then the humpback whales are not going to reach sexual maturity until they're between four and five years old. Um, so it, it takes a while for them mm. to actually uh, be able to start ovulating if they're a female or if they're a male to basically be acquiring, um, acquiring females. And maybe it takes them that long to, Maybe it takes them a long time to perfect their song, mm-hmm. or, or yeah, it's because there is there there are males that are really known to sing, and then there's males that might not be singing uh, much, at yeah. times as much too. So yeah, just just a lot of fascinating information, and and still a lot more to learn. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we, we we talked about conservation, least concern, and then we, we had some concerns with the population around the Arabian Peninsula where it's less than 100. So, you know, they're not a, an official subspecies, but if they get that classification, they'll be endangered, if not critically endangered. They were deregulated recently. So there's an estimate, maybe 100,000 whales, uh, humpback whales around, around the planet, but that's about a third of what their historical uh, population was that we know of because they were heavily whaled almost to extinction like we said into the 1970s now angie i'm going to take the lead this week on conservation organization and i just want to highlight because we we've covered you know some other whale some amazing save the whales some other amazing programs out there but i wanted to highlight the cook islands whale research which is found at whalesresearch.org. And it's the Center for Cetacean Research and Conservation. Just their mission statement that it's the Cook Islands Whale Research Project investigates all species of whales, but primarily focus on the humpback whale populations that travel through the equatorial South Pacific. So that's down in my neck of the woods, and that's why I wanted to, to highlight them doing some great work they're doing quite a bit of research around the cook islands again it's like hawaii our southern populations of humpbacks you know come through from the arctic or sorry the antarctic up to the cook islands and they're studying you know the impacts of climate change and some of this exploration that's going on down here in the southern hemisphere but doing a lot of the the acoustic stuff with the humpback whales, Angie, that you, so you kind cool. of mentioned, yeah, yeah, maybe they'll put you on a boat with them. That'd be. Fun. I know that would be awesome. I got to get to the Cook Islands. I definitely got to get to them. They're just just north of me here in New Zealand, so it's a, it's a great organization. Uh, you know, please follow them. You can also follow them on Facebook, the Whale Research Cook Islands. Uh, I've liked them. There's some beautiful photos on there and stuff that they're doing way out there in the southern pacific ocean so uh, a great organization there's so many people out there doing so many great things and we've highlighted a lot of it today yeah it was really impressive this week uh, diving into google scholar Mm -hmm. and a lot of the the more scientific peer-reviewed literature and yeah seeing a, a surprisingly fair amount of it and uh yeah it's it's just great it's it's hopeful the way the humpback whales have been able to rebound uh, since measures for the protection were put in place in the United States and then internationally. Uh, it is, it's, it's, it's a hopeful story and then it's exciting to learn more about them um, over the next couple decades. Um, I think 
I think we're going to find out that females may um, sing a little bit more than we think. I, I mentioned how they whisper in the beginning of the podcast, and it has been noted that the females and the calf can use their quote unquote indoor voices mm-hmm. if a situation needs it. Uh, and this was uh, this was published in 2017 in the Journal for Functional Ecology. But when mothers and calves are migrating to feeding grounds, uh, the young ones can make these very quiet vocalizations. Um, in fact, about 40 decibels quieter than when the males are singing their loud mm-hmm, songs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so the researchers suggest that this whale whispering is a way for the mother and calf to stay bonded and stay basically out of the radar of, of course, those killer whales that you mentioned too. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, they're out there. They're out there. Well, if you love whales like we do, obviously, this was a whale of an episode. Ha, ha, ha. (laughs) (laughs) Good one. (laughs) Uh, The other episodes we did, uh, episode 26, Blue Whale, that's a great one. Uh, I mentioned episode 27, Dr. Kim Getz. I'm trying to track her down uh, and see if I can get her back on just to see what she's doing. Uh, Episode 64, we did narwhals. Episode 95 and 97, we did orcas. Uh, They were special. They deserved uh, two of theirs. Episode 133, bowhead whale. Episode 172, sperm whale. Episode 192, beluga whale. Episode 193, Paul Watson. Love that. That was an amazing interview with him. And then episode 219, pilot whale. So those are our whale episodes. Uh, you can l- learn more about them there. Uh, amazing species, Angie. I mean, the humpback's a special one. And obviously, you and I have been itching to get back talking species. That's why this one ran long. But I, I don't care. That's, they're amazing. There's so much more we could have talked about. We could have done two episodes. Uh, whales are just, oh, you know, we need to do more. Plastic Free July is coming up. You know, tip of the week, just just keep watching that plastic use. Avoid plastic bottles. Avoid single-use plastics. We're getting there. We're winning this war together. So thank you for listening. And as Angie says, thank you for caring. Thank you, everyone.